3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Creative America. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1 800 743 CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Who's afraid of the big, bad, inverted yield curve now? After today's magnificent run, with the Dow tacking on 250 points, the S&P gaining 1.21%, and the NASDAQ pole vaulting 1.35%. House of pleasure. On top of Friday's terrific rally, maybe we shouldn't lend so much credence the next time some abstruse indicator flashes red. The moment the yield curve inverted, when 10-year treasuries were suddenly giving you a worse return than two-year treasuries, countless experts came on the air to tell you that a recession is inevitable and you should be afraid. Be very afraid! That's no way to make decisions about your money. I explained over and over again, you get a much better read on the economy by listening to the conference calls of individual large companies. And those calls told me that the consumer... The consumer's alive and well. Now look what happened. The yield curve uninverts on Friday. So if you uh, took your cue from the panicky pundits <laughs> and sold everything, sell, 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 you got burned. That's the problem with monomaniacally following the big picture data, the so called macro that I hear everybody yapping about all the time. Sure, maybe an inverted yield curve means a recession's right around the corner, but tell that to the tens of millions of people who shop at Walmart every single week. Hey, president gave Walmart a shout out. You think he's been to one? Tell it to the UPS carrier who has to deliver hundreds of Amazon boxes every day. Tell it to the geeks at Visa and MasterCard who count the number of transactions processed each day. Or the bean counters at Apple where the service revenue stream keeps growing by leaps and bounds, although the negative analysts won't recognize it. None of those companies are seeing a sign of an imminent slowdown. Look, I get why people are worried about a possible recession, and I'm pretty sure we haven't seen the last of these inversions. Our bond yields are much higher than what you can get in Europe. So farm money should and will keep pouring into U.S. treasuries. If the Germans don't do something to stimulate their economy and therefore save their banks, and the Chinese remain ineffectual in their attempts to offset the impact of the tariffs... We could see yet another inverted yield curve-fueled sell-off, and all those negative people will come on air again and tell you, I told you, I told you so. They bore me. But let's dig into what triggered this rally, which crucially, by the way, began before the inversion ended. First, you always hear people yapping that corporate earnings will be disappointing. I heard it's like, oh, they're going to be disappointed. They're going to be up six instead of seven. They're going to be up eight. Who are these people? Who would say that? Yeah, you know, and the, um, the Niners are going to be 12. and so, I mean, come on, uh, because of some top down macro data, these guys arrive at conclusions that I think are, let's say, fatuous. You need to take the whole analysis with a carton of salt. Some of the earnings have been pretty darn good, people. I look at that beautiful Walmart quarter with 2.8% same-store sales growth, much better than expected, and I feel pretty confident. Sometimes I feel more confident than Doug McBillen, who's always quite silent about things. Maybe you ought to speak up a little more about how well he's doing. I guess Walmart choppers didn't get the memo about the tens and the twos. They are taking their financing money, the refinancing money that you get because the are so low, and use it to decorate their houses. They're renovating like that. They're buying new homes. Second, semiconductors investors, they've been betting. Yep, you know, the investors have been betting on a turnaround, but they gave up on the group. Ten days ago, they gave up on the group. And that was based on worries about a cell phone slowdown and the decision by the Chinese to buy local, both of which may even be true. Therefore, the semis were all supposed to be roadkill. Well, it looks like no one told NVIDIA, which reported a monster earnings beat last week, that it was supposed to be roadkill. What's driving the strength there? Look, do you remember when we visited Nvidia? One of the, actually, one of the my favorite times that uh, ever since I've done the show, we visited them. We saw the future, a graphics processor that would make video games look far more lifelike. The technology is called ray tracing, and it's just starting to kick in. We saw chips to simulate self-driving cars, something that needs to happen if Lyft and Uber are ever going to make money. Though I have to tell you, the Lyft stock acts pretty well today, given the fact that the lockup expired. We learned that Volvo is actively engaged with them. Uber uses Volvos. We learned that when we went to the Uber factory floor. We saw NVIDIA's data center chips, and we're told that while there was a pause in spending, it, wouldn't, it would end soon. Apparently it has. Finally, we saw chips that were learning to make inferences, no longer taking our language literally. This I love. For instance, when you say, oh, go jump in a lake. Well, your computer goes to Google Maps and looks up the nearest body of water. But a computer powered by NVIDIA's new inference technology would know that you're just angry. Yep, conversational artificial intelligence is coming. Everything that moves will be autonomous. Every major industry is incorporating AI from healthcare to finance to manufacturing to transportation. These are secular trends and they won't be stopped. Even if Fed Chief J Powell makes a disturbing speech from Jackson Hole this Friday, he should just go fishing. The blowout NVIDIA numbers were reminiscent of the old days. Ah I wax positively over those old days. Remember those were the days when my dog Everest got renamed NVIDIA and now answers. To that name, provided you have a fistful of roast beef, were CBD gummies. Hey, listen, he's got arthritis. What can I do? Regular viewers know I'm a huge believer in NVIDIA, the company, and its CEO, Jensen Wong. But I had no idea the stock would have enough pin action to move the entire group of semiconductors. The roar of Texas Instruments, AMD, NXP Semi, Broadcom, so many others drowned out the drumbeat of the 30-year running amok. No one told Jensen that his products were dead unless the Fed aggressively cut rates multiple times to stave off a recession. <laughs> Perhaps the demand is there regardless. Oh, then there's Apple. We got a bunch of notes last week. Yeah, you know, kind of somewhat positive. Uh, Apple sales, they may be steady and may be uh, OK and uh, above plan even in China. We learned that the service revenue stream continues to be a standout. But the most important thing we gleaned in the last 72 hours, Tim Cook spoke to President Trump about how Apple, which is a cell phone company, would be disadvantaged versus Samsung if its phones got hit with the latest tariff. This may sound pretty obvious, but believe me, there was no sense that the White House cared about this until Cook sat down with the president. The party line had been that if Apple wants to do so much business in China, they can face the consequences. Judging by the president's positive tone about the meeting, maybe it would be more accommodating going forward. Maybe give him a break? Finally, if you needed one more wake-up curve, one more wake-up call that the inverted yield curve isn't all that important, that it isn't the be-all, that it isn't the all we should focus on, well, then you had to go, oh, my God, this was like a great Broadway show, and I usually fall asleep on Broadway. You had to listen to Estee Lauder's conference call, Fabrizio Freda. Genius the cosmetic kingpin reported a spectacular set of numbers. We know that Estée Lauder has a terrific mosaic of worldwide businesses. US segment actually a little bit weaker than others. Still China was on fire. Still the e-commerce purchases were incredibly strong and the stock leaped 22 points in response. Is this Tom Ford stuff that good? I guess so. I'm not I don't go to that counter. I don't know about uh, about you. But what the heck were people thinking using premium makeup with an inverted yield curve? How dare they? How could sales of Clinique be so strong with that 10-2 crossover? How could anyone justify buying Mac when the Germans were arbitraging buns? Well, when you put it that way, it does sound ridiculous, does it? Because it is, even though I've heard it for months. Macs, that's a MAC. My wife has a lot of it. She has like a whole wall of it. What is it? I don't know. It's something that costs money. The bottom line, this rebound can easily be undone if the bond market turns us around, stopping traders in their tracks, but not commerce. The recession talk hasn't vanished, even if it's now buried under a mountain of bullish data points. But on days like today, it sure is hard to find. Hey, why don't we go to John in Kentucky, please? John! Uh, booyah, Jim! A booyah, back! Uh, yeah, Oh, Okay. Yeah. Great. You're My grandson and I—he uh, I, has a little education portfolio that I've got for him for his college. He's nine. Kellerman's nine, and uh, we recently bought some Disney about a uh, uh, couple months ago, and it's down about five percent. But Kellerman wants to buy more, and uh, I kind of agreed. But uh, we wanted to get your opinion on it, and then we I heard think today your there's kids uh, got some news about a whistleblower. Your kid's got horse sense. A whistleblower. A whistleblower. It's like the clown who tried to knock down GE last week. What is it? Fun to take fun in games to knock stocks down? I mean, look, I'm sure the whistleblower, I'm sure he's got, I'm sure there's gravitas. I'm sure it's Jermaine. I'm sure it's pertinent. I am with Bob Iger. Call me crazy. I'm back with Iger. I'd say your grandson's right. Bye bye bye. Hey, how about we go to Pedro in Florida, please, Pedro? Oh, yeah, ski daddy. Yo, yo. I'm a big fan of second time callers. Listen, um, I'm in the house of pain with my stock VMware after the news regarding the acquisition. Yeah, uh, we don't set to report earnings this week. Should I buy more, hold, or sell? Um, I was—I can't say I was that happy with the pivotal uh, The news about the pivotal deal. I think VMware can uh, bring out good earnings. Certainly better than last quarter. I think that they underpromised last quarter, so this time they will overdeliver. So I'm going to say that a bottom is nigh. How about we go to Harry in Pennsylvania, please, Harry? Hey, this is uh, Harry from Newport, Pennsylvania. Jim, uh, first I wanted to say I bought all of your books, and I'm absolutely loving Confessions of a Street Addict. Uh, oh, you're too put, nice. I Can't put the book down. You're too and nice. I want to also say my girlfriend started investing. She loves your show. Um, I bought a uh, Royal Dutch Shell last week, and I bought it more or less as a value play. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on the oil sector, not just Royal Dutch Shell itself, but the oil sector, and it's just been beaten up. The no, whole no, I, back, and, I, I have soured on the fossil fuels. I think that there's long-term real issues there. Even the best won't go up, and I have to tell you, uh, Royal Dutch, for instance, is not as good as BP. And if BP cannot get out of its own way, if you want to cautionary tale, try looking at whiting or even worse, concho. In other words, stay away. All right, please, please don't get me wrong. I don't think we've heard the end of the recession talk because there's a lot of people. It's like a cottage industry. They can't stop yapping about it. But boy, oh boy, the mountain of bullish anecdotal evidence is hard to ignore, isn't it? Oh man, Money Tonight, feel like the fun police have invaded this market recently? I'm ah, Six Flags versus Cedar Fair to see which play could put the recent roller coaster action to good use. Then it's one of the hottest groups in the market, but it's been flying under the radar of the screen of late. I'll reveal it in tonight's off the Charts. But first, despite the slowing economy here in the US, the consumer, the consumer, it remains strong. I'm taking a look at where they're spending, what they're buying, and the companies that you need to buy shares in. So stay with Claywood.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com businessgoldcard.
3: For those of you who work in retail, I genuinely feel for you. With this new American consumer, there's really no place to hide. You can't possibly have business as usual because there is no business as usual anymore in this country. Why? Because the American consumer has drawn a line in the sand. Either you're online or you're off price. And everything else is either doomed or at best stuck in a slow decline. Like Macy's. Regular brick and mortar retailers just can't compete anymore. They're just slowly going away. These days, the consumer's addicted to convenience. We didn't really care much about convenience until Amazon came along. What we're seeing now is a generational change. It's a sea change. If you're a baby boomer like me, you appreciate being able to buy stuff online. But if you're a Gen X or a millennial, it's not just that they dislike brick and mortar. I don't even think they understand the reason for it and who can blame them. Why in the world would you pay more for something that you have to leave your house in your car to pick up in person? Amazon will give you a cheaper price to deliver free to your home. I mean, you don't have to put it in your car. Isn't that great? That's what Prime's about. And that was so pain- that's what was so painful about that Macy's quarter last week. The fact that they missed in the key woman sportswear category and that it hurt them was stunning. Can you imagine Amazon missing in anything? And even if they messed up a single category, who cares? For Macy's, it was crucial. And they botched it. And that was all she wrote. 9% yield. I mean, holy cow! Here's what you need to understand. I keep telling you about WATCH, my acronym for Walmart, Amazon, Target, Costco, and Home Depot. The five retailers that are crushing the competition, either with their convenience or their bargains, or both. But WATCH is about more than that. For one thing, it's about balance sheets, bountiful balance sheets. It costs a portion to build on a working, thriving e-commerce business. Walmart, Target, and of course Amazon have all been able to spend what they needed in order to deliver goods to you as fast as possible because they have great balance sheets. They'll have them run out to your car to be picked up after you park. I mean, come on, you can't beat that. What really separates these companies from the rest of retail is that they can afford to spend like mad. Target may not have the wherewithal to compete directly with Amazon or or Walmart, but it was very clever with its acquisition of SHIP, that's S-H-I-P-T, last year, which is the ultimate same-day delivery service. Now, Target reports this week, and the results have been spotty, I admit, but every time the company misses, buy. Walmart totally gets the preferences of older consumers, but they're also starting to encroach on Amazon's territory thanks to their everyday low price strategy coupled with their ability to use all 4,177 of their stores as distribution centers. If that's not convenient enough, right now Walmart's rolling out the most aggressive delivery service of all. Directly right into your house. That's right. They have cameras on. You come in, the guy comes in. If you're not home, it knocks on the door, Come on, he puts it right in your fridge. I mean, the trust their customers must have. Uh, but it is a way to beat Amazon in its own game. We know that Amazon has more than 100 million Prime members. But did you know that Costco has more than 90, 90 million card holders? It's a club, for heaven's sake, not a store. It's become a cliche, but Costco practically invented the whole treasure hunt idea that makes people actually want to shop there. Again, like Amazon and Walmart, Costco is presumed to have the lowest prices, especially since they allow you to buy in bulk. That's the one thing people are willing to happily buy in person. Incredibly cheap stuff. I included Home Depot and Watch for two reasons. One, it's got the lowest prices, and two, it offers terrific customer convenience. I know customers love Home Depot, but more importantly, as I think you will hear tomorrow morning, contractors love it. Lowe's, even under the leadership of the excellent Marvin Ellison, hasn't been able to crack that whole Home Depot has on the pros. Last time, Home Depot, the stock got hammered on the quarter, and if you bought it, the darn thing roared right back. Maybe it does that again. That's why Watch makes so much sense. But what about the off-price side of things? That's the other part of retailers working, remember, online or off-price? Consider the two dollar stores. They're doing incredibly well. Dollar Tree now carries a ton of national brand names but for more than a dollar. Still, though, at a lower price than you can get almost anywhere else. Dollar generals rely on dirt-cheap consumables. Don't need China for that. Both represent terrific value. They're just plain bargains. I know they've moved a lot. I like them. The other off-price stores are booming, too. They went down today because people don't associate them with the boom that suddenly people seem to be having or think to be having. That's TJX, Raw Stores, Burlington. They're doing the best. Notice how poorly they act today. I like these names the most right now for all the reasons that I hate the rest of brick-and-mortar. Uh, off-price chains like TGX are the beneficiaries of all the excess inventory out there. When department stores like Macy's have too much merchandise, they sell it to these companies at a fraction of its cost. If you listen to Macy's conference call, which most of the pundits didn't, you'll be salivating to own Burlington stores. One of the chief reasons why we bought it from my travel trust. You can follow along by joining the com club. Burlington has, stock has been dropping. I think it's worth buying right into the sweetness. What else works? Well, you've got some winners in the digital side, but, but, but uh, uh, right uh, alongside Amazon, I think Etsy, Shopify, and Wix are changing the way we shop. The move toward handicrafts reflects the revulsion toward big national brands that was mentioned by a big department store chain that's now too small for me to talk about, whose CEO, one-time CEO was on our air and frankly didn't do all that well there. Gen Xers have brand—they've uh, they got zero brand loyalty. Brand 0 uh, They'd rather find something that's one-of-a-kind on Etsy than something that's in every mall in America. Etsy and Shopify have made it much easier to sell handmade goods. The big-box stores destroyed many of the mom-and-pop stores that would sell this kind of stuff from local purveyors. They were all destroyed. But these fa- facilitators of e-commerce are bringing them back. But That's another nail in the coffin of brick-and-mortar. Is there hope for traditional brick-and-mortar retailers— We keep hearing about experiential, but these days I think that term has become a sham. As everyone claims to be experiential, you know, pets and workout and games, you know, experiential. Experiential hamburger, for heaven's sake. For the record, it's not really experiential unless it looks good on Instagram. My daughter told me that, which rules out a lot of the stuff. Some stores are fighting for their lives. Hey, listen, on a recent Tanger Factory outlet conference call, I was shocked to hear that there were very, very high number of lease expirations happening this year without a lot of stores to fill them. CEO Steve Tanger, a very good merchant, says, quote, most of the bankruptcies of the last three to four years can be attributed to leveraged buyouts by specialty retailers, by private equity firms that did not invest in merchandising or their stores, not because of a flaw in the outlet distribution channel, end quote. And, you know, in good times and bad times, we're supposed to like a bargain. Well, I agree with the, to what some of the logic of what Steve's talking about. I also think millennials no longer believe that outlet stores actually represent bargains anymore. I think, the, I think that this new generation is wise to it and thinks that, you know what? They're making that stuff special for those outlet stores. And you know what? I think they're right. In the old days, there were so many stores that could sell full price goods offline and still make it. be and Beyond. Right? Not anymore. I think it's hand in mouth. Norsem, struggling. No different from Macy's, as I'm sure we'll hear this week. Same with Dillard's. Bottom line, these days, when it comes to brick and mortar retail, I only see a couple winners. I'll just throw them out. Columbia Sportswear, they come on. Lululemon, Boot Barn, they come on. Other than that, I need you to stick with watch and the off-price plays. If it doesn't have a great digital presence or incredible bargains, I need you to take a pass, and I need you to stay with Cramer.
0: engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Can summer fun for families mean summer dollars for home gamers? These topsy-turvy stocks offer thrills and chills. But in the stock market, the only right direction is up. Six Flags, Cedar Fair. Which ride can take investors to the most exciting heights? What can you do if you don't trust
3: this topsy-turvy market? Sure, the last couple of trading days have been terrific. But the average is a bad habit of turning on us just when it seems like we may be out of the woods. So for those of you who are still feeling nervous about a potential slowdown, I can't blame you. Let me tell you how to protect yourself. You want yield, bountiful yield. In an environment where treasury yields are still at low le- levels, 10 years around 1.6%, the 30 years barely above 2%, stocks with big dividends become a lot more attractive. There's no competition from the bond market. If you want investments to generate income, dividend stocks are the only game in town. Unfortunately, everybody else knows that, too. Most of our go-to high-yielders have been performing pretty well lately. And when dividend stocks go up, their yields shrink. That's why we're on the hunt for new options. We want stocks that are somewhat down and out, giving them accidentally high yields. I call them A-H-Ys, but not so down and out that these juicy payouts are in danger. In short, you want something like the amusement park stocks, Cedar Fair and Six Flags. With Labor Day weekend rapidly approaching, sadly, it might seem like a weird time to highlight a group that does so much of the business during the summer. But hear me out. Cedar Fair and Six Flags were both excellent long-term performers. They've made you a lot of money over the past decade. However, in the past year or two, both stocks have peaked and come down substantially from their highs. That's how you end up in a situation where Cedar Fair sports a 7.1% yield, and Six Flags has a 5.7% yield. Talk about flags. This is a red flag, right? Some of it's because these two companies have always paid generous dividends, but some of it comes down to the recent underperformance in the companies, and therefore their stocks. I think those dividends are both safe. But because we believe in diversification, you should really only consider owning one amusement park stock. So the question is, which one? Let me show you how you choose between two very similar stocks. It's a tutorial. Don't worry, I'll make it fun. Cedar Fair owns 11 amusement parks, along with three water parks and four hotels, all of them in the U.S. Six Flags is bigger. They're the largest theme park operator on Earth, with 25 parks, mostly in the U.S., although they've got a couple in Mexico, one in Canada. There's not a lot of daylight between them. Now, why have these two stocks fallen out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show? their stories are a little different. Cedar Fair peaked in May of 2017 and spent the next two years moving steadily lower before the stock finally bottomed roughly two months ago. The culprit? At first, when the company started reporting disappointing numbers in 2017, the company blamed the weather. The analysts believe them. Heading into 2018, Cedar Fair rolled out new roller coasters at its two largest parks. There was a lot of optimism. It typically means that there's going to be a boost in attendance. But then the company pre-announced some dismal numbers in July of last year. Once again, they blamed the weather, although this time investors didn't buy it. Since then, Cedar Fair has struggled to regain Wall Street's trust. And even though the last few quarters were solid, they didn't prevent the stock from rolling over, along with the rest of the market in May. So Cedar Fair's had an attendance problem. What about Six Flags? This one kept climbing until 14 months ago, then spent the next nine months getting just completely and unmercifully hammered losing 36% of its value by the time it bottomed in March. Since then, the stock has shown some signs of life, but it's still well off its highs. And the story here is pretty much the same, just on a compressed timeline. Six Flags started seeing weaker results. They blamed the weather. And just so the company got a pass, right up until they reported a very weak quarter last October, right into the teeth of the market-wide meltdown. There's one more component here. Six Flags has been looking to license its brand and allow foreign developers to create franchises overseas. Hey, that could give a nice revenue stream, right? The company had big plans, including parks in Dubai, Saudi Arabia and China. But those projects got delayed. Some of them may not even happen, which crushed the stock. Still, just like Cedar Fair, the last couple of quarters have been better than expected, but no one's paying attention except for us. And just like Cedar Fair, it didn't really matter when the market sold off in many, although Six Flags have been bouncing. Now that you know where each of these companies is coming from, we've got to figure out which is better in a clinical and rational way. Six Flags has roughly twice as many properties as Cedar Fair. However, the revenues are almost equal. 1.5 billion for Six Flags, and 1.4 billion for Cedar Fair over the past 12 months. Still, Six Flags brings a lot more profit out of those sales—275 million versus 170 million for Cedar Flags. Point to Six Flags for Cedar Fair. Point to Six Flags. Actually, a very big point to Six Flags. How about the quality of their parks? Six Flags has more of them, and quantity is a quality of its own. Six Flags also has a branding relationship with Warner Brothers, which helps. On the other hand, Cedar Fair's flagship properties in Ohio and California are probably the best in the business. Plus, Six Flags has some international exposure, which is not right what we want right now when it feels like the U.S. is the last economy standing. Most importantly, there are the numbers. In the last month, both companies have reported solid quarters, which is the only reason I'm comfortable recommending them in the first place. I wouldn't be doing this piece otherwise. Six Flags delivered some mixed numbers. Small earnings missed coupled with a modest revenue beat. When you drill down, though, Boy, there's a lot to like, including an 8% increase in attendance. That's stellar. And they're starting to make money on their international licensing deals, including that project in China. As for Cedar Fair, the results were unambiguously strong. A gigantic 25-cent earnings beat off of an 86-cent basis with higher-than-expected revenues thanks to an upswing in attendance. They sold a record number of season passes, and their in-park per-capital spending which is something we like so much about Disney, keeps climbing. On the conference call, CEO Richard Zimmerman said, we feel very good about how the year is tracking as we move into the month of August, followed by the increasingly important and very popular Halloween and winter holiday events. Boy, do I ever like the fact that these guys are no longer just one season. So what changed here? Maybe Cedar Fair's execution improved. Maybe the problem really was the weather. When you're a theme park operator, that does the bulk of business during the summer. Weather can be make or break. Hey, listen, rainy weekends just crush you. Either way, after last quarter, we're crowning Cedar Fair as the winner. It's in a be- better position than Six Flags, although, of course, we welcome both on to tell their story. And you know what's crazy? Cedar Fair also has the cheaper stock. It sells for less than 15 times next year's earnings estimates. Six Flags sells for 19 times earnings. That's a substantial discount that shouldn't be happening, especially when you consider that Cedar Fair pays a bigger dividend. It's got a 7.1% yield versus 5.7 for Six Flies. Oh, and Cedar Fair's payout is safer, too. It eats up 58% of their operating cash flow compared to 68% for Six Flies. These stocks, well, Cedar Fair is mispriced, I think. The bottom line, if you're searching for income, Look no further than the amusement parks. They're a natural place to go. But if you're going to choose one of these, it should be the cheaper, higher yielding Cedar Fair. Symbol fun, which I believe is right now a better bet than Six Flags. Let's go to Daniel in my home state of New Jersey. Daniel! Hey, Jim. First time, long time. First time, long time. So, me and my buddy, I'm new into the market, and we've been discussing Royal Caribbean. And uh, I wanted to know your opinion on it. You know, it's at a it's at a little low right now, and I wanted to know if it's still a good buy at this number. Uh, I think Richard Fain is a terrific operator. I like Royal Caribbean. I mean, some of these stocks, they're just short term blips. I think that that's a very good one to go with. And I believe you and your bud, first time, in a long time, are doing the exact right thing, buying some RCL. All right, let's understand each other. The market's been a wild ride, but if you're looking for a play that can help you stomach it, I I say Pepto. I think the amusement parks are the place to go. There's much more mad money in it. You may not know it by looking at me, but you don't have to be sexy to make money. Tonight's charts may not have the looks, but they've got to the stay in power. I'll reveal the names when I tackle the technicals. Then the state of the consumer has never been more robust. I'm talking about the consumer here. I'm going to real-life. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer.
1: Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE.
3: I've been researching millennials, and they're not all that crazy. Oh, that's good to know. Because they owe $7 trillion in debt. And when, by the way, six years, six years, $100,000 per cop. Sorry, Carl.
1: <laughs> that's Jim. <laughs> it all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
3: If the roller coaster action in this stock market is making you sick to your stomach, maybe you need to stop fighting and start embracing it. We have an extraordinary level of volatility here. It feels like every day we're either soaring to the stratosphere or plummeting back to earth. And you know who benefits from that kind of volatility? The exchanges, that's who. Up, down. If you're running an exchange, you don't care about direction. You only care about volume. When traders fit in and flit in and out of an entire asset class on almost daily basis, these companies make fortunes. That's one reason why these exchanges are among the hottest groups in this market. Although this is one of those stealth bull markets that you don't hear as much about. And I, well, that's my fault. I don't talk about these companies nearly enough. Um, why? Well, I don't know. They're not sexy as some other cohorts like anything technology. Now, fortunately for me, you don't need to have sex appeal to make a fortune. That's exactly what these changes are doing. So why don't we take a look at things? Let's look at G- uh, CME. The CME group. This is called the uh, the symbols: the uh, long negation, the CBOE Global Markets, or CME Group, and the Intercontinental Exchange. These companies have practically have a license to print money, and their stocks are on fire. Why? In part, it's because the industry has become a slap-happy oligopoly. Thanks to a decade of consolidation, the major exchanges have tremendous pricing power. Uh, power. Uh, because there's nobody left in the game who can compete on a large-scale basis. Boy, that's what you want if you're a capitalist. These companies have been gobbling up their rivals left and right for years. CME bought the Chicago Board of Trade. That was the Cbot. Uh, Intercontinental Exchange bought a series of companies, including the NYSE or the New York Stock Exchange. Now they have the leverage to beat down potential competitors, which is why their stocks have been total juggernauts. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Bob Lang. He's the founder of ExplosiveOptions.net, as well as being the brilliant technician and the all-star duo behind the Street.com's trifecta stock newsletter. He's also the author of Know Your Options, to get a better sense of where the exchanges might be headed, because these stocks remain as hot as can be. We know the fundamentals are good. CME, the company forming known Chicago Merck, uh, is making a killing, thanks to the strength in commodity trading, especially now that gold and silver have gotten their groove back. And you see we highlight gold all the time now. CBOE, originally the Chicago Board Options Exchange, has seen an explosion in earnings thanks to the introduction of weekly options. It used to get, be that you can only get monthly options. These are incredibly high-risk inv- instruments, by the way, which is why speculators love them. Intercontinental Exchange owns the New York Stock Exchange, along with a host of other stock commodity and futures exchanges worldwide. We just spoke to Stacey Cunningham. Remember, we were outside in front of the New York Stock Exchange. She's president of the NICE. And she told us a very compelling story, I thought. Uh, all three had strong quarters, even as they were up against some pretty tough comparisons. So now let's delve into the technicals to find out which ones are up to snuff in. Man, is that a strong chart in the chartist world. Let's start with daily chart CME Group, which made a new all-time high just earlier today. Not many stocks can say that. Even though CME got clobbered back in March, it's now up more than 15% for the year. Look at this rocket ship, will you? I mean, that's incredible. You, know, you had like, what, like four days? There's probably only been about 20 days that have been negative here. So, what does Lang like about this picture? Okay, when the stock pulled back hard at the end of July, we see this was the big, big pullback here. Okay. Uh, testing its for support from the June lows, it quickly rebounded from those levels. Buyers stepped in almost immediately because there's just such tremendous demand for the thing. Boom, bounces off of it right like that. Wow. While CMA has rallied the Ichimo cloud, all right, we'll try to throw everything at you here, that's a tool that uses a number of moving averages to give you a one-glance read on the situation. It has stayed green. That's very important. When the cloud is green and pointed higher, it suggests that the stock has more upside. Then there's what we call the MACD, the moving average convergence divergence. That's one of my favorite indicators. It's an important gauge. It made a bullish crossover, right there you see, uh, where the black line crosses above the red one. That's one of the most reliably positive signals in the entire chart book. Plus, we know that the big institutional money managers can't seem to get enough of CME. Why? Because we look at the Chaykin money flow. And that shows you that uh, it's, that's a measure of the level of buying or selling pressure. It's extremely strong here. OK, stocks currently at $216 and change. Lang would not be surprised if this thing makes its way all the way up to $250. I wouldn't be surprised either. This is a very good stock for this environment. Next, take a look at the daily chart of Intercontinental Exchange. To Lang, this picture is a thing of, oh my God, these charts are gorgeous. Uh, this is a gorgeous pattern of higher higher highs and higher lows. So that's what you You know. Higher high, higher low, higher high, higher low, higher... You get the picture. It's really incredible. Uh, once again, the in money flow, look at this, look at all the money coming into this thing, has been in extremely positive territory, indicating the big institutions are buying the stock hand over fist. The MACD indicator is right on the verge of a bullish crossover. It's not there yet, but it's on the verge. The HMO cloud, Uh, In this Ichimoku cloud, i got to tell you, expanding, classic bicycle. Sorry. When Intercontinental Exchange pulled back to its 50-day moving average in late July, the stock found a powerful floor of support and quickly rebounded. Again, you know, you see these things, boom. Uh, It made a new all-time high earlier this month and is now up 23% for the year. Lang's view, ICE is trading at $92 and change. He's betting this one's going to make a move over 100 very quickly. Finally, there's the chart of, of the CBOE. Once again, we see a very similar trajectory. CBOE, or the CBO got slammed in late July. They all did. They really took it on the chin, okay? But then the stock, just a couple bucks away from 52, guy just roared right back. Lang likes that the CBOE has made a consistent pattern of higher highs and higher lows. There it is again. You see that? This is like the diciest moment, but it bounced right off the 50-day, which is very powerful. Uh, this is exactly what Charso is always looking for. Since the latest rally really took off in April, the stock has climbed on strong volume and heavy money flow. There again, we look. what do we have to look at money flow? We have the chicken money flow. The MACD is extremely positive. There you go. Uh, as is the relative strength of the RSI. I've got everything thrown at you here. That's another crucial momentum indicator. Uh, the Ichimoku cloud, trending higher. What is not to like? Best of all, in May, SIBO made what's known as the Golden Cross, where the short term 50 day moving average crosses above the 200 day. That is the holy grail for chart watchers. Any money manager who cares about the technicals will plow into a stock that does this, okay? Uh, which explains why the SIBO is up roughly 20% since then. Langley's the stock has, has more upside. Yes. Uh, but with CBO currently trading at 120 at the big run, he'd like to see a slight pull back to 115 to 118. See that it's just a little too much above the average to pull the trigger. Here's the bottom line, people. The charts as interpreted by Bob Lang suggest the exchange stocks have a lot more room to run. He likes CME and intercontinental exchange right here. Buy them tomorrow. And he likes the CBOE into weakness. As for me, ugh. I love these stocks. And I'm getting a sense that these want, these stocks have been anointed as winners by the big hedge fund and mutual funds, which means they could potentially keep running right through the end of the year. Guys who want to own call option, options deep in the money for the month of December, I'm sanctioning. Although, ideally, of course, I want to pull back. All three were great for me. Mad Money is back after the break. It is time it's over the lightning round it's over close and then the lightning round's over. Are you ready, Skid? That is over the light round question. I'm gonna start with Bob in New York. Bob. Jim, this company is one of two aaa rated companies, boatload of cash, booming cloud business, but their second largest revenue stream is China. With the China trade and possible recession, is Microsoft a trade or like Apple? And own it equity. I want you to own oh, my persona. Nadella bye, bye, still, bye, such a remarkable bye, job. Bye, uh, bye, I'm going to my producer right now offline. Regina Gilgan, can we please see Satya Nadella in Seattle? That's how good he is. Bingo!
0: Jennifer in Oregon. Jennifer! Hi. Um, I have 338 shares of Boeing purchased okay. at 137 a share. If you were me, would you hold, uh, sell half, and Take out my initial uh, investment or sell all of it. Well,
3: actually, to tell you the truth, I would take out my initial investment and let, let the rest run. I know it's a problem out of Comfort but the fact is that even if they shut the uh, production line down, the, the stock is reflecting some of that. So uh, take out the money that you put in, and that's it. Dave in Illinois, Dave. Dr. Kramer. Dave, man, what are you up
2: to? Oh, nothing much. My stock today is Ferrari, R-A-C-E.
3: Well, you know, my wife is a Lamborghini person, but I got to tell you, race is doing remarkably well. I'm a buyer, Dave! I'm a buyer. Dominic in California. Dominic. Hi, Kramer. Yo, my yo. My grandson has a question about a high flyer for you. Okay. Booyah, Jim. I'm a 14-year-old veteran, second-time caller. I'm calling about InMode stock. Should I buy it or hold it? Right, that thing is about as hot as a pistol. It's got no earnings. It's got no revenues. You're out there all by yourself on that one, my friend. But I do like younger people having a chance of taking a big swing, and you can do that. Jerry, Connecticut, Jerry!
1: Booyah, baby cake!
0: Oh, yo, yo, <laughs> yeah! Hey.
3: Brother, I'm looking at Hexo. I heard they did Just keep looking. Don't buy. Because I'm telling you, some of these uh, cannabis stocks, with the exception of Kronos right now, I say be careful. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning
1: Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
3: Even though vast swaths of retail are in big trouble here, some of these malls are just terrible. The American consumer is actually in great shape. There are three main factors here. One, we've got a great job market. Two, if you own a home or portfolio of stocks, your investments have likely increased in value in the last decade. And that makes people more willing to spend. Three, we've got enough free time to take part in the new economy. Let's take them one by one. First jobs. Every time I hear someone say the bond market's predicting a recession, I've been coming back to the labor market. It's just so easy for most people to find work. There are many more jobs than there are people to fill them right now. To the wealth effect, the destruction of the, uh, of the state and local tax deduction was supposed to wreck the housing market, at least in half the country. But with the exception of the highest tax states in New York, New Jersey, and parts of California, it didn't really have much impact. Instead, homes have remained good investments, made suddenly better by the recent crash in mortgage rates. If you were worried about affordability, plummeting long-term interest rates mean it's no longer a problem. Third, the new consumer, the millennial consumer, is so different from the baby boomer consumer that her tastes are hard for people at my age to fathom and hard to capture in the data. But I'll give you a shot. Millennials believe that they're never going to make as much money as their parents. The whole generation is scarred by the financial crisis. Throwing gargantuan student loans, $7 trillion, the rise of the gig economy, the ascendance of the Internet, and the death of, cons- of customer loyalty. And it's a very different dynamic. You've got a group of people simultaneously very frugal and also addicted to convenience. So what does that stew of preferences mean? Look, you've got a whole generation of people who've grown up with Amazon and Netflix. You love convenience. You don't like to leave your house. You don't like to leave your couch. Hence the strength in delivery king's Target, Walmart, and, of course, Amazon. Think about what's working in this environment. Young brands. had not been doing so well. Now it's killing it. Why? Taking a share versus Domino's because it's got delivery now. Starbucks, McDonald's, Chipotle, they're all delivering. They're thriving they deliver. How about the Netflix side of the equation? This is all about sitting at home and having all your entertainment delivered to you directly while you watch your TV, or while you play your video games. Think take to Interactive. Oh, and if you're streaming video to your TV, it's probably enabled by Roku, one of the hottest stocks of our era, the little engine that could and wasn't destroyed by Amazon. Now, what's been rejected by this next generation? Housing and cars. We now have 327 million people in this country, yet we're building half as many homes as we did when we had 202 million people, what does that tell you? Either homeownership has increasingly become the province of the rich and just isn't attainable for most folks, or the younger generation prefers to rent. If you grew up during the financial crisis, I can imagine being pretty hesitant to buy real estate. How about us? Same deal. Ten years ago, when there were 282 million people in this country, we sold 17 million vehicles. Now we have 327 million people we are selling the same number of cars. Think about Uber, right? For a lot of people, owning a car simply isn't a great value proposition anymore. It isn't. Final straw. Consumers get their news and information from the web. That's created a spending pattern that starts with the iPhone, not the ads, not the mall, not even the demand. So much of consumer spending is now mediated by big tech. But at the end of the day, what matters is that the consumer is still in good shape. It's just that we've got a generational shift in spending patterns that's leaving a lot of companies high and dry. Don't be fooled. People are still shopping. They're simply not shopping where they used to. Stick with crazy. All right, the consumer is strong, but the patterns are so different that the macro data doesn't capture where the money is being spent. Hence why I don't really trust the macro data, but a lot of other people do, so I have to stay close to it that doesn't mean I trust it. The inverted yield curve told us nothing about the consumer spend. Nothing at all. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll try to find it just for you, right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I
2: will see you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery,